0: So welcome, everybody. Um, Another episode, another treat for you. Um, This week, we have got the wonderful Dr. Charlotte Ord. And usually I would, this is the point that I would introduce my guest to you, but I thought this week I'd do something different, and I would let Charlotte choose how she wants to introduce herself. So, Charlotte, welcome, and over to you. Hi, Christine. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I, I'm I'm
1: Charlotte. I'm a counselling psychologist, and I have come from a background in health and fitness. So, so perhaps quite unusual in that respect. Um, But I specialize in working with people who struggle with their body image, with their relationship with food, uh, as well as uh, people that struggle with issues around LGBT issues and depression, anxiety. So quite a a, a wide variety of people. But my my specialism is is really around food and eating disorders and Mm -hmm. body image. And I have a, a private practice. Which is based in Guildford, but I also see clients online as well, which Mm -hmm. has really sort of opened things up a bit since since COVID, especially. And I'm also currently writing my first book, which is quite exciting. So there's lots going on at the moment. Um,
0: But yeah, that's that's me in a a nutshell. That's I mean we have so much to talk about here. I think we were talking before we hit record. there's a lot to cover shortly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm really um, excited. I've kind of delved into the world of counselling myself. I did, I did a couple of years of training, um, counselling training before thinking, actually, maybe I'm just going to be a trainer in the non-diet space. Because I think as a trainer, we tend to hold space for clients Absolutely. anyway. And, you know, so it's not necessarily a strange pivot of a career? Because I think a lot of trainers feel the same, that they they hear all of their clients' pr- problems and they struggle to hold space for them. So it's a, it's a way. So I would like to ask you on that note, what prompted the pivot from trainer? And we'll come back to the biggest laser in a little moment. But what prompted mm-hmm. that sort of pivot towards psychology and, and counselling psychology? Well, so I actually did my
1: Undergrad degree in psychology and sociology, mm-hmm. and really enjoyed it. But at that time in my life, I was riding horses semi-professionally and was absolutely dead certain that's what I was going to do. Uh, and then, then decided actually that I, I, I was going to go into fitness. and I was quite sporty, so so that was quite an obvious choice. And really didn't feel ready to pursue sort of further education after my initial degree. And and I loved working in fitness. I really enjoyed training people. I worked with a very broad array of people, from um, you know international across teams to wow. uh, to people that are really kind of you know either getting back to fitness or getting into into fitness for the very first time. So so that was that was amazing, and and I had loads of really great you know experiences. And I think the more experienced I became as a trainer and as a coach, the more. The, the psychological elements of health and fitness came in. Mm. And I found myself, re- a, really enjoying getting to know people on more of a psychological level and really understanding more about what their struggles were, what their barriers were to, to fitness. Um, but I also noticed that I felt uh, like the work was becoming really quite unbounded. And that I was starting to have clients come coming to work with me who were really struggling with their eating, were struggling with their mood, who um, who I just felt I wasn't I wasn't equipped to to help, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I was referring on to psychotherapists and psychologists, but I really wanted to be able to help. And I found the work really, really interesting. And that was what made me think, actually, you know 10 years after my initial degree I thought actually I'm I'm ready now to go and go and study and, and do my doctorate so fortunately at that time I had I had two gyms at that time and a fantastic team of coaches that I was working with and so I was able actually to to leave that work or at least work kind of part-time at the gyms in order to pursue my my doctorate and it was mm-hmm. it was an incredibly busy time yeah Because I was having to do clinical placements and things as well as, you know, all the kind of academic work as well um, and run the business. But it meant that I could do that and run alongside. And and initially I'd intended to amalgamate the two and, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. work as a psychologist, but in a a gym setting. But actually, the further I got through my training, the more I realised actually I liked liked working outside of that context um, and felt that my my days on the gym floor were probably coming to an end. And that felt like quite a good, a good place to press pause. Um mm-hmm. and it coincided kind of with the lease coming up on the the premises that the one of the gyms was based at. And so it just kind of felt like it was the right time, right time. to to make a pivot. But it, it certainly it didn't really even feel like a pivot. It just felt like an evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, because I felt felt like I was doing such such psychological work anyway. Um, and so so doing my training felt like I was really just becoming much more resource and much more competent and ethically, you know, in, in the right position to be able to do the work I wanted to do.
0: I mean, it's so interesting, Charlotte. This is something that has been coming up a lot that, you know, I think it's important as a PT that we remind ourselves that we are not therapists. yeah. And we've got to be careful and boundaries, Um, you know, and a number of people who come to us, we, you know, people, especially in the fitness industry, it's rife with eating disorders. Absolutely. So, you know, and I think I did a course on on recognizing um eating disorders for, for fitness professionals. Mm. And it's something that I've been really trying to push to become part of the curriculum because it's actually a lot of the people that you meet, compulsive exercise behaviors can go hand in hand with eating disorder behaviors, yeah. and just the diet culture that surrounds the fitness industry. But I think you know, I certainly have been not guilty of, but I have certainly been wanting, and I've had clients come to me who are really struggling, and I've wanted to help them because it is, yeah, it's it's very hard to to keep boundary in that position, but I think. You know, there's. I have done a course in being a trauma informed um, Pilates course, which is great. But that does not make me a therapist. It maybe makes me able to spot the signs and then signpost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. You know, it it is difficult, isn't it? Because it's 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 a grey area. It's and a gray it, area. the boundaries mm-hmm. are are quite poorly defined i think yes um but as you say in the fitness industry especially i think it, it, disordered eating and exercise practices are really normalized yes um and it was only really mm-hmm. when i moved out of the fitness industry that i could see that very very clearly mm-hmm. um and you know what also is very striking is that you're right pts do they, they do hold space for a lot of emotion and everybody mm-hmm. has a body and they you know they bring that body to the gym or to the, the kind of fitness space and talk about it and share their emotions because you build yeah. a bond um mm-hmm. and and that's quite a lot to hold I think particularly in other arenas as a you know as a, a psychologist myself or you know psychotherapists, dietitians they'll all have supervision they'll have yeah. a space to take you know to take their work to um where they have a third eye and someone else who can help to keep not only their clients safe and, and, you know, the practice kind of ethical, but also the, the clinicians safe? but that's not, that's not a normal practice in the fitness industry. I kind of think it should be. And I think it would yeah. be really helpful. Um, but, um, but it's not, and I, and I certainly felt that I wasn't, I wasn't coping very well with the level of emotional, um, work I was doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that, in that arena. And, you know, that's part of what the training does is it equips you to be able to manage that safely so that you practice safely for you and your clients. Yeah, um, and that's where I think for, for fitness professionals and you know and other healthcare professionals, having a network can be really helpful of you know of other practitioners that you can discuss things with, refer to liaise with, um because I think having that support is is really helpful.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a good point. And you know, I'm lucky to sort of have a community of PTs that I can chat to, and who are also in the non-diet space. So that's also really, really important. But um, coming back to your time as a as a trainer, yeah, and obviously then you were were you managing these two gyms? Were they? Oh, initially was, but then I had
1: a a manager in each. In each. So so I was still very much training, um, but I was doing. I was doing quite a lot of strength and conditioning uh coaching with um with sort of various teams and things as well like DVD and you know I had lots of of things on the go
0: um
1: but yeah so I had a very very good team sort of holding the fort when I wasn't there
0: well I find you on YouTube so I was um looking at a a video that you'd done um and it sort of called you so here's my segue it called you the biggest loser coach um Charlotte or and um I recently have had on the auntie Jillian Michaels, as she calls herself, the jock scientist, as she is on TikTok and Instagram, Mallory Burgess. Mm -hmm. And she feels very strongly about The Biggest Loser. I can imagine. And yes. not not in a very positive way. Mm. And and I think it's a really interesting one, Charlotte, because I used to love the biggest loser. Yeah. I used to watch it every single week and I would feel it was motivational. You know, I didn't I wanted to get up and move and I wanted to be like Gillian and you know, and it's looking back on it, you know, it's it shocks you. So I listened recently to the maintenance phase podcast okay. and they have yeah. they have an episode on the biggest loser. And the amount of body shame mm-hmm. and they just, you know, the the what they were putting these people through on a daily basis. I'm not sure how it was in the UK because this is only based on the U.S. Yeah. Version. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to talk to you about your experience. And if at those at the point that you were training on the show, mm-hmm. were there red flags or was it a an environment that was safe for people was it I'd love to just know a little bit more about it
1: yeah I mean I have to sort of cast my mind back to where I was in my kind of career and my understanding um at that point and and I remember definitely feeling a little conflicted about yeah. taking on the role because I definitely was uh becoming a much more compassionate coach by that yeah. point. Mm. and certainly I think was becoming perhaps more aware of a health at every size approach, but I I certainly don't think I had really fully understood or embraced it at that point. And so, I mean, admittedly, I I think my ego probably had, you know, something to do with being on the show. Um, And I also felt like I could probably do more good by being on it than by not being on it yes um, uh-huh, uh-huh you know it gave me a voice and actually by the time I finished the show I really used that voice for a much more kind of anti-diet approach to to health and fitness and well-being um yeah. mm-hmm. but, uh, sorry go on
0: I just it gives you that so that that's what I'm thinking the thinking that gives you that in gives mm-hmm. you that way and biggest loser coach immediately people want to talk to you so you can actually then get your message across yeah which is
1: and, and it's it's difficult because I did have to coach in a way that didn't completely align with mm. what I would be doing with, you know, clients in my gym. At the same time, a, a production company would never come and video my clients at the gym because they'd be bored to tears. Right. You know, uh, good, solid, periodized training does not make for good TV. Yeah. It's boring. <laughs> you know, you they mm-hmm. want to see people being sick and yeah till it collapsed and you know unfortunately I think um I haven't obviously never been a coach on the US show um so I can only go on hearsay but from what I've read and heard about it I think some of the very extreme things that were going on in in the US show uh would certainly not happening in the UK there was nothing like there was you know there there was just nothing that I thought what on earth are we doing yeah yeah um And I imagine that's partly because the US show was longer running, but also um, there was a lot more money involved. Um, So, you know, there was the kind of business element of it coming in too. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we had contestants training for several hours a day who were completely deconditioned. Mm. Um, some, Some of them had never had any kind of fitness background or training. And that, you know, that comes, of course, with an inherent risk. And so... I really tried to write programs that kept that in mind yeah and yeah. at the same time you're holding this pressure of having to produce results which is awful because as you know you know weight loss isn't doesn't work that way um, what it does is it encourages people to do really unhealthy things in in pursuit of this lower number um so you know so it did it felt like a like a a, a big tension to hold Um, Mm. and uh, you know I just I just had to do the best I could with that really Um, and you know and in hindsight knowing so much more about the body and the you know the sort of culture around weight and the stigma and discrimination and Mm. uh, you know just just being so much more informed about it I, I, I probably wouldn't take on that role again yeah. Um, I say that very tongue in cheek. I, I absolutely wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, but it was it was where I was in my career at that point. And and actually, as, as you said, it gave me a platform to then
0: a platform, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I I had something a much smaller scale, but um I worked for a little while as I was beginning my my PT career. Mm-hmm. I worked um for a weight management um group um yeah. which was part of the council. Mm-hmm. Um and again, I was hugely conflicted, but mm-hmm. felt I can change the system from the inside. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of I only did the exercise portion. And I would be talking to these people about, you know, what do you like about your bodies or what do you enjoy? What do you yeah. and I was trying to make exercise fun and you know, bring that across. But I was still a cog in that system. And it was very much about the quota. It was about they had to meet the quota of weight loss. And that was the only thing that really was important. Um, And it just, yeah, I had to get out of it. So it came a time that I'm like, I just, I need to leave, I need to not be part of this anymore. But you know, so there's never yeah, I think it. It also gave me a platform, gave me that awareness. It gave me that look inside the yeah. system, and yeah. then you know. I mean, it,
1: similarly, when I qualified as a, as a psychologist, I worked in a weight management bariatric service, right. at the NHS, mm-hmm. and and I, you know, I accepted that role with a much clearer position, as you know, as the as someone who was practicing from a weight neutral perspective yeah who, yeah you know i am anti-diet but i really enjoyed working with that demographic of people and i mm-hmm. felt like actually particularly in such a medicalized setting there was a yeah. real need for yes. that perspective yes. mm-hmm. um and i worked there for five years and i you know i i really i really enjoyed it i, I actually really enjoyed working um in the team especially with the dietitians um who were incredibly knowledgeable um, but the actual surgery, I felt incredibly conflicted about because it's, mm. you know, for some people it it, it seemingly is, uh, you know, a positive step. But for but for many others, it's um, it's much the same as darting. It, you know, yeah. it works for a while and then it doesn't, and it has some serious side effects. So uh, in the end, I felt like it conflicted too much with my values, and I and I decided to leave. Yeah. Um, but I don't regret working there because actually. I was able to, I think, support a lot of people in feeling more accepting of their body, as that's it was and really see clearly why they were tempted to go for for bariatric surgery, and often it was because they felt that their health would become at risk because that's what they'd been told that their body at that size was a health risk. Yeah, um, yeah. not that they had any health issues, and so, um, so I think it was helpful for those people to, you know, to have a much more neutral voice. Um, and, um, you know, and it, yeah, it was, it was a, 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 a part of my career that I'd certainly a,
0: a, like enjoyed and found very, very fulfilling. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's exactly that nothing is, nothing is black and white. You can't, yeah. you can't just say, I'm not going to work in that area. I'm going because mm-hmm. the people, you know, we all started our journey, sorry, inverted commas at some point. So, you know, there was a time when I, was definitely in front of a class saying, you know, this is going to burn 500 calories. We've all come from, you know, there's, you know, and you can't blame anybody for it because it's the culture that we live in. It's surrounding us. It's the air that we breathe, you know? so it's. And I think that's so important that,
1: you know, I think a lot of trainers and and just practitioners in, in all sorts of arenas find it very hard to move from one, uh, kind of narrative to another and mm-hmm. I think that's because they feel feel shame and, and I know yeah. I, I felt ashamed actually in retrospect of some of the things that I'd promoted in mm-hmm. terms of fat I mean my entire business as a as a trainer was built on fat loss um and you know and it was a huge risk to turn that around and I did yeah. I did, t- I totally changed my business model um Absolutely. with the gyms t- to a completely um you know it was it was just not focused on weight at all. Wow. But that was a massive risk because mm-hmm. you know fat lost souls, particularly <laughs> yeah. then. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone wants it. Mm-hmm. Um but I think when you know when you know better you you do you better. Do better. And, and it's that's okay. It's okay mm-hmm. to say actually I did the best I could at that point, but now I know better I understand better. And I'm gonna try and try and shift things a bit. Um
0: you know it's it it reminds me it's it, you know as a lot of my clients have children and, you know, they'll sort of talk to me. I'm also an intuitive eating counsellor, okay. um, but they'll also talk to me about um, I wish I had, you know, done it differently with the kids when they were little. I wish I hadn't said no sugar and restricted mm. treats and, and cold food, good or bad. I wish I had. And it's like you you don't know. You only know when you know. And then, Absolutely. you know, you can do better once you know better. Exactly that. And there's never a point of blame because we are all living in this in this industry, in this world that it is very hard to swim upstream. Absolutely. And it is also, as you say, it's not the easy sell. It's you know, no, it's really not. It's, you know, much. I have clients that will come and say, I really want, you know, I want to lose weight here. I want to tone up here. I want to look better. I want to, and I I just sort of say, I can't guarantee any of that. I can, you will feel better. You might feel stronger. You might have more energy. You know, you, you might be able to climb up the stairs, get off the floor. You might, you know, there's a host of things that I can help you achieve, yeah but I will never guarantee that your body will change in a specific way because I can't as a trainer I just I just can't but coming back to parents and children Charlotte Mm -hmm. so um I I myself I'm a mother of two daughters Mm -hmm. and coming from an eating disorder background um I certainly made mistakes when they were young in Mm -hmm. terms of I was still very much in the eating disorder myself unbeknownst to myself Mm -hmm. um and that absolutely impacted them um And it was only kind of a few years ago, really, maybe four or five years ago, that I changed things completely. Um, And I wonder, so you mentioned to me before we started chatting that your work, um, that your work towards the book that you're writing is about body image, specifically around families and children. Can you talk to me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So the book is about effectively raising body confident kids it's aimed at parents and caregivers of children, sort of between the ages of five and fifteen, which I appreciate is you know quite, quite a spread. But it's really about empowering adults that are you know invo- involved with with raising children on how they can sort of proactively help to to support them in developing a, a peaceful relationship with with both their body and food in a way that perhaps those parents themselves might not have been um, and you know it's interesting you're saying about your experience of sort mm. of recognizing in retrospect that there, there might be things you do differently now um than when you were sort of more um more meshed with dark culture and the the first chapter of the book is um or one of certainly one of the early chapters is about your own you know really addressing and unpacking your own relationship yes. with body and food Because it's like fitting your own mask first. Yeah. Um, Because unless you have that kind of awareness of your own position in relation to it, your own biases around weight, your own, um, you know, beliefs around food, your own experiences really, from a really compassionate, non-blaming stance, um, it's going to be really hard then to, you know, to to support a child or to be be aware of how you might... um, might influence the child in that way. Um, and it is, you know, the trouble with dark culture is it's become so embedded in our culture, we barely even notice it. Um, unless you work in this space, you know, I know you're incredibly informed, and I think when, once you really hear it and you're really attuned to it, it crops mm. up all over like alarm bells. But I think for a lot of people, you know, I've got lots of, of very, very, very intelligent, informed friends and colleagues at using narratives that are heavily um, really? stigmatizing, mm-hmm. and you know, and they're not even aware of it. And why should they be? Because that's not their their arena. It's not their work. Um, and and I, for me, it's I feel like it's my role perhaps to gently just raise awareness around it and um, and start to help people attune to the ways that they themselves have been impacted by those narratives and also where those narratives have come from because they're so oppressive. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're rooted in racism and supremacy and all, you know, all these really kind of insidious um, mm. power structures. So that I think most of us are, are not massively aware of. No, 100%. So, so that's the kind of first, first real kind of task of the book is to to help people think more about their own lens Mm-hmm. Um, and and also introduce some you know some really kind of positive proactive guidelines that that you know parents can um, can use to support their children at home and you know in practical ways.
0: I mean, you you were saying about um, how it's kind of just ingrained in us without us even knowing. And there's one thing that you know everybody believe so there might have times that I get not personally but I will hear oh my goodness you look great have you lost weight mm-hmm. is that just falls off your tongue yeah it's you know it's just it's a compliment yeah you know and we have to unpack that why is that a compliment why is looking smaller equal to better because yeah. and that is just accepted yeah and, and that is you know I hear this consistently from friends and and I just always try and encourage people do not comment on bodies please just do not comment on somebody's body and yeah. and I've you know talked to friends personally and please do not say one word about either of my daughter's bodies do yeah. not mention I don't want to hear anything whether you think it's complimentary or not I just yeah. and but it is just and there's no malice. It is just no. a product of living in this society, isn't it?
1: And it's so far removed from where it kind of originated from that it's just it's sort of just accepted as mm-hmm. you know smaller, thinner is better, yes. better in every single way without question. Um, and of course, we have no idea when we compliment someone, you know, who's lost weight, how that weight loss has been achieved, exactly, whether yeah. it's an eating mm-hmm. disorder, an illness, stress. Uh, you know that there could be so many reasons why someone has lost weight they might be incredibly unhappy um but this the sense of oh you're better because you're smaller Mm -hmm. is really harmful yes not least because for the vast majority of people they will regain that weight yeah because that's what
0: bodies do um so just in every single way it's really 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 unhelpful um um, and I heard um, you a podcast. I was doing my research and I listened to a podcast um, with yourself, and you mentioned, and this is what I actually said to my daughter today, that generally people who score slightly higher on the BMI, which obviously BMI is bullshit, so let's just yes. that now, Um but people that score higher tend to live longer. And yeah. so that was, I was like, we need to say that a few more times. Yeah absolutely. No.
1: Yeah, I mean it that, that's right. Statistically, people that fall into the overweight category on the as you say bullshit BMI scale live longer than people that fall into the normal category.
0: I mean I mean wh- why are we still using this as a yeah. measure of health?
1: It's yeah. Well, that, was I mean, it was in, never never intended to be used no. as a measure of a in the first place. And you know the other thing was I think I think it was like in the 19 19- early 1980s don't don't quote relax that, that could be <laughs> yeah. wrong but at some point um the the scale was shifted yes overnight. S- overnight overnight so you know suddenly people who were in the normal range were in the overweight range. It, you know it just it's just such a load of
0: bollocks it really I think it is. went from 27 to 25 because it was a more round number yes I mean okay what and it's 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 just you know that people are going to doctor's offices and being shamed because they don't fit a inverted commas normal category on this scale which means nothing and actually if you're slightly higher on the scale you might live longer I mean it is just
1: and it's so so (laughs) problematic in terms of you know particularly having worked in medical settings how it is used as a criteria for accessing. Uh, you know treatment Mm. and one of the things that just boggled my mind in the bariatric world was that a a significant number of of patients that I was working with were having surgery in order to access things like knee replacement surgery other forms of surgery that, that, that were considered to be a high risk for someone of a certain BMI and I said, OK, so they're now having to go through two lots two of surgeries and mm-hmm. not access this, this treatment. Like, for example, a knee replacement would enable someone to become more mobile, to, you know, to move their body again and that sort of thing, which, of course, is going to you know support their health. But instead, they're being left for years having to go through this bariatric process before they're even given that opportunity and it's you know it just it just seems so discriminatory and then Mm. we wonder why bigger body people have worse health outcomes when they don't have the same access to to treatment they have to face constant stigma and you know Mm. discrimination and it's you know which of course is stressful which we know has an impact on people's health um so yeah it's 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 really problematic um
0: you know, it's it's one thing that I find really interesting is that my um, I work for a platform. Well, I do two classes for a body image platform. It's mm-hmm. called Body Image Fitness with the amazing Kim Stacy. She's based up in the northeast, and she was approached by the NHS, mm-hmm. um, and they want to work with her and bring her program to a number um, of the patients in in that area. Sort of yeah. roll it out as a trial. And that, to me, was the best thing I'd heard in years. The fact Absolutely. that the NHS were reaching out to a plus-size fitness professional who worked in the non-diet space and wanting to bring her up to these, it just heartened me. I thought yeah. maybe there's a little inkling of a change yeah. brewing.
1: And I think that's,
0: yeah, I think that, it, that
1: is that is right in that, and that's one of the reasons that I stayed working in the NHS mm. for such a long time. Um because I do think you can, you know, um sort of motivate change. Yeah. And it's amazing how, you know, with the with the right kind of small voices coming together, things do start to shift. Um, that that certainly was the case in, you know, the services that I worked in. So, and that's amazing to hear that your colleague so has, fantastic. you know, has been approaching that way. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that, you know, the more research that the health health every size community uh releases you know the more of an evidence base that builds I think the more traction it's going to get um yeah it's um, just
0: it's heartening isn't it it's just you know it just takes a
1: long time in the NHS you know guidelines and things to be to be changed but
0: but hopefully we'll get there fingers crossed but um Charlotte now because this is a movement podcast it's all about finding your strong And obviously, you've been an athlete throughout your life. I'd love to know what your relationship with movement is like
1: currently. I I mean, yes, I've always been quite sporty. Um, I love being active. You know, I guess I'm I have privilege in that respect and I have, you know, I was was gifted an athletic body from the Mm. start and and always enjoyed sport and being competitive and things. Um, So. Most of my, I guess, relationship with movement has very much been about competition, about sports. I played lacrosse quite seriously when I was younger, and mm. um and then rode horses, and I still have a horse now, um which you know, which is still a, it brings a lot of joy to my life. Uh, mm. But nowadays, it's much more about enjoying movement for what it is. I love running with my dog. Um, mm. I run pretty much every day, and. I do sort of follow a training program, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, fairly loosely. And it's, it's now it's just me against me when I'm competing. Um, and you know, I, I do the odd sort of half marathon things, but you know, it's, um, it's very much about the, the kind of process and the training and being out in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to mm-hmm. love training in the gym and actually to, to an extent, if I had more time, I probably still would like training in the gym. Uh, but I do love being out in in the world, whether it's pouring with rain or sun shining, you know, that's, that's good for me. It's kind of quiet time in my mind, mm-hmm. um, especially with my dog. So that's, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it at the moment. But I think historically it was much more much more aesthetically motivated and and I felt like I had to look the part of the personal trainer, whatever the part that yes. means. um mm-hmm. You know, but back then it did it, well I think even now there's a there's a very strong kind of idealized image yes. about what healthy looks like, which actually probably can be further from what healthy really looks like. Yeah. For most people. Um, but I certainly felt like I had, you know, there was a lot of pressure to look that way. Um, so, you know, and, and I, yeah, I certainly came to that, I think, during my fitness career.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is, there's huge pressure, isn't there, as a fitness professional, but um, there's, as women sort of heading, I work generally with women sort of 40 plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and as women sort of head towards peri post-menopausal years, the wonderful years, Um you know, strength training comes into its own. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, a conversation which I love to have with people because it's, there is a fear around strength training Mm -hmm. about becoming bulky. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for me, that's where everything clicked into place when I started strength training because I was not training to shrink. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was not training to shrink my body. I was training to strengthen my Mm -hmm. body and to take up space. And then, you know, that really changed for me. Yeah, And then I was almost able to accept my body more because I felt strong in yeah. my body and I didn't think I've got to shrink. I've got to be smaller. I've got to, you know, obviously thoughts are still there. But it is a battle that I have with clients that really want to be strong, but only mm. in a certain way, only in the fitspo way.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's sort of twofold, isn't it? It's on, on the one hand, um, you know, recognising that actually with the best one one less particularly for women unless you are genetically quite predisposed to having high testosterone and and building muscle quite easily yeah. you're going to struggle to gain muscle like yes. serious muscle mass like you you really are yeah. um and you know I know that because I've I've worked with several sort of bodybuilding women who would do anything to gain muscle mass and you know their their diets are Uh, you know um absolutely military in terms of getting huge amounts of um of each macronutrient in the right sort of quantities in order to try and gain the tiniest bit bit Mm -hmm. it's you know it's an art so so i think you know and, and at the same time i'm i'm cautious of not demonizing putting on muscle mass because how fantastic to be strong and to look strong
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and you know and I think it's very diet culture to think oh well it's it's okay because you're not going to gain muscle unless you're sort of predisposed it's like well if you are they're brilliant yeah um so that that's I guess the other part of it is looking at you know well, what what's
0: what's the problem if if you do gain Yes, I, yeah, and, and that's Make that's those. really interesting that you mm. said that that's really diet culture to say, oh, don't worry, you're not going to, mm. you know, it takes ages to build muscle because that, I think that's a way in for people. It's, you know, that will, once they're there, maybe then they'll realize the benefits and they'll truly be able to embody that and feel been that in themselves. But yeah. maybe it's okay to say, actually, to build muscle is frigging hard. And especially yeah. once you hit 40, 45, it is, you know, you're losing muscle mass. So we're talking yeah. about maintenance, if nothing else.
1: Absolutely. That's it. And, you know, muscle mass is so important, especially as we get older um so yeah but so i think exploring what it means to take up more space and mm-hmm. you know what it means to be strong um and visible is another part of it i think if if people are struggling with with that idea of am i going to gain mass and something that i think can be really helpful is to you know bring people into your into your life into your vision social media accounts and so on who are strong who yes. you know who represent different types of beauty you know body diversity role models if you like yes. not in this kind of really narrow um narrow sort of physique that we're used to historically i think that can be so useful at normalizing 100%. actually women being confident in the bodies that they are that they're in um
0: and isn't it just you know, I, I, my poor daughter. I, I yak away on my soapbox door every day, but um, it's about exposure. It's a mm-hmm. you know, we since we were children, we were exposed to thin, white, blonde women, yeah. you know, and yeah. it's when you're exposed on a daily basis through the magazines, through the TV shows, through you think that's what you should be. Yeah, and I think
1: yeah. a massive problem, you know, is I mentioned this briefly earlier is the very real issue of thin privilege yes you know it's it's not in people's minds when they feel that you know when they're in a bigger body they get treated differently that happens the thing Mm -hmm. is it's Mm -hmm. not their body's fault and it's not their fault that isn't a societal social justice issue that needs to be addressed not people's bodies um, so I think to kind of deny that is, you know, is is not helpful. I think we need to say yes. Actually, weight stigma is a thing. Weight discrimination is a thing, and that needs to change. Yeah, it, you know, we need to work on
0: equality. Um, so, so it's not just a, on an individual level. This is a social justice issue which we need to actually address. Um, absolutely,
1: absolutely. And I think the more people recognise that and and actually get a bit a bit angry, a bit angry yeah. that, that they might have experienced inequalities because actually sometimes anger can be quite helpful in saying, well, actually, no, this isn't okay. Like how dare you shame me or make me feel like my body's not okay. Um, and, you know, it can really help to to, to promote change um, and, you know, enable people to feel more accepting of, of themselves and, and a different narrative around Bodies and what beauty means, and all of those things.
0: And it is that, you know, that what that's saying that if we all ate the same and worked out the same, we'd all look entirely different.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, and I think it's, it's fighting your body to look a certain way, which isn't actually where your body is happy. You know, that's the bit that, and it's that's easy to say from somebody coming from a place of privilege. Yes. That is, you know, absolutely. but it is you know your body wants to be in its place where it's happy yeah. and you know it's about sort of giving it what it needs and then letting it letting it do its thing and it's, I think it's yeah, that it's trusting you know, that
1: and that's a really trusting. scary thing I think for, for a lot of people because you know for for people who have spent a lot of their lives on restrictive diets mm-hmm. The idea of letting the reins go feels really scary. Yes. Sorry if you can hear my dog. Oh,
0: it's okay. No, I love your dog.
1: Can you hear him? Yeah, a little oh, bit. Oh, don't worry. If he doesn't stop, I will go and get him, and uh, <laughs> yeah. quite, obviously someone at the door or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, it, it can be very, very scary to, to trust that your body's going to settle mm-hmm. um, because it may well settle in a place that isn't your goal weight yeah. or isn't yeah. what you want wanted to be I'm going to go and just open the door no, go in, for it. I'll be one moment
0: we're just waiting for Charlotte to come back she's just gone to have a look at her little doggy yeah.
1: <laughs> just right. like sorry about that <laughs> Don't <really> <laughs> with the little menace um Aww, yeah and you dog. know the other thing Kristen, that I think is is difficult for people is actually acknowledging when when we ourselves have had thin privilege mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. when someone is in a position of privilege to relinquish it doesn't appeal. No. It's, you know, they they don't want to think that they've actually, you know, started on third base. They want to think they've yep. done it all themselves. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing to admit. And um, you know, and that's something I've I've definitely definitely had thin privilege for sure. I'm sure there's opportunities that I've been given that um that I might not have done had I been in
0: you know in a bigger body. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: And and that's just how it is. And, you know, right. I think I think body image impacts everybody, no matter what size they're in. But yeah. not everybody has that privilege given to you if you're in a thinner body. And that you cannot deny that, you know.
1: No. And it's not that not that I think that people in thinner bodies shouldn't have those privileges. No. It's that everybody should have. Those should privileges. have those privileges
0: precisely. Um,
1: so, yeah, I think that that's an important thing to.
0: And I think, you know, I think that we are very far away from that. I think there has been maybe progress made. um, I think, think think, you know, I think that's something that we need to talk about a lot more. Yeah. You know, that's just that's that's another that's the um, that's the overriding conversation. You know, we we talk about body image quite a lot. And I a lot of us talk about body image, but it is this is as you say it's a social justice issue that not everybody is treated the same way yeah you yeah. know whether it comes to jobs whether it comes to being able to buy clothes and shops whether it becomes to you know seats on airplanes whether it comes to just just being accepted being you know it's not equal yeah
1: and you know interestingly um, maybe this was way before society was ready for it i don't know but during my uh my counseling psychology training I actually started a petition um, to have weight included as a protected characteristic under the UK Quality Act. Wow. And I was absolutely shocked by how little support that got. Um, and shit. maybe, yeah, I was really surprised. And maybe that was because um, my audience was primarily fitness industry um, you know, colleagues mm-hmm. and who were very heavily invested in the kind of fat loss narrative. Um, and you know and it, it probably felt quite threatening to them potentially. But at the same time, it really it just boggled my mind that people were almost justifying discrimination, you know based on someone's size and and maybe that's because maybe because they believe that it is much more under personal control. Than yeah. it really
0: is and um, isn't there a statistic that maybe i think it's 30 percent of our health not talking about size talking about our actual health um is under our control or under 30 yeah. percent through nutrition and exercise yeah. and I think, I how think we live less less might that. be less than that you know
1: but there are yeah. there are over 100 variables that impact someone's weight and yet at the moment it's you know the narrative is that it's all about personal control and just move more and eat less
0: oh if I hear that (laughs) I I can't stand that it just makes my blood boil Uh, it really does but Charlotte you've you've really incited us to sort of really think about making a change and trying to get angry about diet culture and speak up you know and just vary our social media feeds talk to our kids you know and work on ourselves a little bit you know really sort of I think the internalised fat phobia is real. I think I we are all we all are scared to put on weight and we have to kind of address why, why that is. Yeah,
1: and I think mm-hmm. to do that in a in a compassionate way. Compassionate way. 100%. Because we have all grown up in this, you know, in this really harmful culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think many people have escaped that, if anybody. No. Um, so it's natural that we've internalised that. And to, you know, to disentangle for that takes a lot of, of time and courage and but you know surrounding yourself with people that are doing that and are are you know promoting that self-acceptance and body diversity I think is hugely helpful.
0: Thank you Charlotte that is brilliant so that's for me that's the best parting words is just surround yourself with people who are promoting diversity and you know expose yourself to bodies of all different shapes, sizes, colours, do not restrict your feeds um and if if you're following an account which is what i say to people if you're following an account that doesn't make you feel good about yourself and your own body just unfollow you have autonomy absolutely. you can unfollow them at any point but um thank you so much charlotte it's been um, absolute pleasure thank you for having me and i might have to have you back on for part two so i'd <laughs> <I> love that <laughs> thank you so much take care charlotte. bye